the creators of Relevant Magazine, this is The Relevant Podcast. It is Tuesday. It's February 25th. The year is 2020. You're listening to The Relevant Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Huckabee. I'm here in Nashville, Tennessee. Meanwhile, down there in, in Orlando, Florida, with Chandler is MIA. We don't know where he is and we don't care because we are so happy to have back our our, our illustrious producer who, uh, who is superior to Chandler in every way, professional and personal. It's our friend Clark Flippo. Hey, guys. Meanwhile, up there in Loveland, Virginia, he is on the fence about Clark, but we're hoping to win him over by the end of the day today. It's our friend Jesse Carey. <laughs> I am on the fence. No, no offense, Clark. Me and me and Chandler go way back, and right. I have been hunting for him all weekend. It's like I basically am like Liam Neeson from Taken. I have been calling random people, and I said, if you have Chandler, I will find you, and I will kill you. And most of those calls have ended up with the police calling me, uh, wanting me to stop making threatening calls to random strangers in an attempt to locate Chandler, which I just remembered he had a pre-planned vacation for these days. So maybe all of that was Mission accomplished. But anyway, I think I can, will rest easier tonight, but... Yeah, welcome to the. I'm I'm excited to be here, Tyler. Uh, and uh, and hey, we have a special treat for you all today. Mm. Joining us on the relevant podcast as uh, as a, a friend of ours that we've been wanting to introduce you all to for a while. He lives in Washington D.C. He works for an organization you might have heard of called World Vision. He's our friend Brian Dust. Hey, Brian. Hey, everybody. Uh, I wish we had some sort of maybe we should do this, Clark. I'll leave this in your hands. Some sort of like special fanfare for introducing new people, like oh, some yeah, sort of definitely, big, you know, yeah. like the walkout me, like the roots for Fallon. I don't know if we had, like could we do something? Oh, it's oh, our friend Brian. I the tiger is my walk on song, so we if you want to edit that, and also. Can I, I? It's actually nice to be on the podcast because this explains a lot of, especially why Jesse called me over the weekend yelling about Clark. I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> this all makes sense. I said, hi, yeah, he got a call from me at 3 a.m. on Saturday night as I'm wandering the which streets, which is not unusual. Which is not yeah. unusual. And I'm just, I'm just, you know, yell, driving down random cul-de-sacs, yelling, Chandler, are you here? Chandler, I will, I will find you. And then I just started calling every number in my phone looking for him. No, Brian. You are real quick. What do tell people your official title there at World Vision? So I am the senior media relations manager at World Vision based in D.C. And uh, uh, we've done we've had we've had you've had a lot of adventures with our team over the years. Uh, <laughs> yeah, most notably t- taking um, um, I took Jesse and made him drive in the desert of Somaliland until he threw up. Yeah, and uh, even though it only took me half hour to throw up, Brian continued the car ride for the next seven hours in a hundred degree heat uh, through the open desert. So you know, you also you, you've done a lot of we've done a lot of cool projects together over the years. We did the last year. You helped us uh, organize the Global Six K, where uh, people around the world run six kilometers, which is the average distance that uh, people in the developing world that don't have access to clean 
clean water, have to travel on a daily basis to, to access clean water. Um, done a lot of cool stuff and you, you get to travel. You're going to, uh, I, I guess I can say this. You, you're, you have a, a trip in the spring. You're, 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 you're going to back to Africa. You're going to Uganda to, to see some work there. Your man that is, is always traveling the globe, always doing some incredible stuff with World Vision, who, who we, we've truly loved working with over the years. But that is not your only professional aspirations or professional <laughs> pursuits. Uh, you know, we have, you know, you know, Brian, we have a lot of people on on the pod. We have a lot of people sit in. Uh, but you are actually a technically trained and uh, uh, um, someone who's got some experience <laughs> under their belt at some open mics and some uh, some showcases. <laughs> Brian, I want to talk about your, uh, in addition to your career in, in, in the field of humanitarian uh, relief, I want to talk about your comedy career. Tell us real quick, uh, 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 Brian, t- give us a little background on what your, what your background in comedy is. I'm particularly interested in, I, I know what you meant, Jesse, but it sure sounds like a slight when you say you're technically trained. Uh, no, no. I didn't mean. I didn't mean like you're technically. I, I mean like when someone says, you know, I'm a technically, or I guess for I, I should have said formally trained because if I'm like a technically, like technically trained, because it implies. Uh, no, I like great. the implications. You know what I mean? There. Like if I. Oh, yeah. I, I see. You have a piano. Yeah, I'm a technically. I'm a technically trained piano player. No, no I meant formally trained. I'm a trained. doctor. Yeah. I'm a technically trained physician. T- t- listen, technically, no what? technically, I'm a doctor. Now, does that translate to this country or does it having a medical license that I didn't print off of the internet? Technically, don't worry about it. No, are Brian, you, you are, are you formally trained. trained. Use that, uh, technically. <laughs> Brian, you are formally trained comedian. What makes it worse is that he also used air quotes when he said technically. So he's just <laughs> rubbing it in. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's no better thing to do when you're not working for a Christian humanitarian organization. You need to bring a little levity. We see a lot of tough stuff. I mean, I love the work that we do in refugee camps around the world, sponsoring children, you know, number one provider of clean water around the world. But like, it's pretty stressful. So, you know, you got to hit an open mic. And do some stand-up, uh, which Jesse told me that he would do an open mic with me, and he has yet true. to live up That's to true. that commitment. I've heard, I've heard um, that. <laughs> and you do, and, and you do make frequent uh, trips down here to to Virginia Beach. We, we see each other. You, you're not that far away. You live in D.C., which is only a brief drive for me. So you know, there's nothing preventing this dream from happening. But here, here, I Brian, no, I got a question no. for you when it comes to the open mic thing because I have considered it over the years. Like just just giving a sample. I've only tried it once, and I've told the story many times. And it was on a Christian cruise line uh, <laughs> when I was in high school. And it was for talent night and it ended disastrously. There's no need for me to rehash the details of the story, but I was heckled off the stage by the MC, which was the Southern Baptist ventriloquism duo of Geraldine and Ricky. And that Ricky is one acid tongued puppet uh, or dummy, I think is the right nomenclature. It was such a scarring experience. And my, my Christian high school forced me to write a letter of apology to the cruise line. I'm sure they appreciated that. Um, I really went along long way um 
but here here's my thing when you're prepping for an open mic how much how much of your material is basically scripted like how much when you step up to the mic you know you're like okay i hit this beat i hit this line pause go on to the next transition or how much are you kind of loose shooting not totally from the hip but 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 you're you, you know you're, you're kind of improv a little up there what is your strategy because that's what it's been psyching me out about open mic night because i'm not really a scripted kind of guy you know off the cuff. Yeah, I would say the the thing to know is when we go do an open mic night, I'm going to mock you regardless. So just know Good. that from the mm. beginning. But mm. I think the thing to understand about stand up, I think Seinfeld said this was he's like, OK, people are afraid of two things. They're afraid of uh, death and they're afraid of speaking in front of people. So if you go to a funeral, um, the the person the person speaking at the funeral um, is just as terrified and more terrified than the person in the uh, in the casket. So they would literally rather be dead than be speaking in front of a pe- group of people, which is part of why I wanted to do that, because it just sort of overcoming a fear like it's terrifying doing stand up in front of like four or five hundred people. Mm, so yeah. I thought I would give it a shot. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? And so uh, a lot of the jokes I I write and then some of it is crowd work. So like depending on what people are laughing at or someone's dressed weird or is, you know, they're have on an awkward first date. You just kind of mess with them a little bit all in good fun. Yeah. So uh, give me real quick. It's, it's a packed house. I'm setting a stage for you. It's a packed house. It's a hot night in DC. The, the comedy scene (laughs) is popping. It's, 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 it's Friday. Everyone's out ready to have a good time. Ladies and gentlemen, introducing to the stage, Brian Dust. hit me with your opener right now, because the opener to me is what really sets the stage for everyone. Yeah. I think the last time I went up, I, uh, I, I said hi to everybody and pointed out the fact that my dad was in the back of the audience and um, clarified that, yeah, there, you know, he came over on a boat in the 50s as a refugee and he couldn't be more proud of his son who is doing stand-up comedy <laughs> in an improv club for free. <laughs> and then just sort of goes on. For, I, That's good. I, I think self-depre- self-deprecating humor is really the best. I mean, if See, you think about some of your favorite comedians who are like maria bamford or Patton oswald like if you make fun of yourself then people can get on board with it i mean i'm not a professional comedian but i really like i mean there's so many challenging things in this world that if you laugh a little bit you can really i think deal with them a little better I, I do agree that laughing is good, but I don't believe in self-deprecation. I do not believe. <laughs> I never apologize. And I never back down, Brian. This is 2020. I don't know if you see what gets ahead in the world these days, but it ain't making fun of yourself. Oof. It's doubling down. I would get on the stage and start the crowd work right away. Hey, nice soul patch, Sugar Ray. And just like I would turn them against me and just absorb their booze and convert that energy into just blistering takes on the appearance of people in the crowd. I learned my lesson from Geraldine and Ricky on the <laughs> on the comedy school of hard knocks. I didn't need years out on the, I didn't need years out on the road slogging it in comedy clubs across the country to know you know the pain of what it feels like to be on the receiving end of heckling. I had one terrible night with Geraldine and Ricky, and they taught me everything I need to know. <laughs> this is this is slowly turning into a morning radio show. I think we need oh, we need to talk about. Well, you're figuring out really quickly the general the general trajectory of the relevant podcast we do we do have content of substance coming up right you had a great we do have some content of the yeah i guess i should probably we didn't even get a chance to get around to it but fortunately 
for our listeners, it is not going to be conversations about stand-up comedy and complaining about the the new PC SJW culture that has infected the comedy scene <laughs> for the entire time. It will be a lot of that, but not for the entire time. We're actually going to do a sharp whiplash in a little bit. We're going to be joined by Karen Swallow Pryor, a, a wonderful professor who is editing a new volume of literary classics. And I had a, a, a great conversation with her about the importance of reading classic literature, especially for Christians. That should satiate some of you snowflakes out there who don't like who don't who don't like the tone that this is taking a little bit that, that conversation is also good and our our profound apologies to karen for having to follow Listen, if there are two content. targets to my comedy if there are two targets to my comedy one is quote unquote science <laughs> i thought we were going to talk about locusts in africa and the nine-year anniversary of syria but jesse you can talk about whatever you want whatever yeah. you think is most important Fair enough. Thank you, Brian. I will. My most of my material is coming at science and coming at big literature. I'm not a big fan of the reading. So big lit and science. That's who I target. That's who my material. And then and then it's just crowd work. And then it's just making fun of the appearance of strangers. Brian, I have a I have a question for you that's comedy related as well. What is your feeling on if you would ever participate in a roast, because here's what I I've been thinking about this a lot lately. You know, you go on Twitter, uh, especially if you're involved in, in sort of, even if you just follow a lot of people in sort of the, uh, you know, kind of Christian thinker space in, uh, you know, um, kind of evangelical culture, a lot of debates always happening and there's not a lot of humor out there. Everyone is kind of uh, always, you know, angling in, in these different kind of debates, which is fine. I think debate and discussions are healthy, but you know what, what, you know, it really brings people together. And Brian, this is what I want to get your thoughts on. What do you think <laughs> about roast? A good natured, you know, kind of a, a session where there's where someone sits on on the stage and everyone kind of you know makes fun of them and it's good natured, but it's a, it's a way for people to kind of get stuff out of their system, and but everyone's kind of laughing, having a good time. What do you think about a roast? And if we had, you know, if 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 we were roasting, you know, someone who probably wouldn't be like a typical target of something like this, so, so someone I mean, like you can a, say it. You've been trying you, you've been trying to organize a Richard Rohr Rob Bell roast for years. We all know that how satisfied <laughs> listen the roar roast <laughs> the roar roast would be that we that show up how, real quick how satisfying would it be to see rob bell in that on that throne okay he's <laughs> the subject of the roast and john piper take the pulpit and just lay into him everyone would, him everyone would love it everyone would love it it would be hilarious down. yeah Pete Holmes would be there. All the best. So many people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Destroying him. Um, I think roasts are just an amazing subset of comedy. I think for me, um, roasts have to just have no rules. And you have to understand that you're being mean, but you you like the person. But you have to understand, like, to do it right, I couldn't work where I work. I love World Vision. I love helping <laughs> millions of children around the world every year. I don't think I could do a roast and still keep my job. You think you'd get a little unhinged and you'd say some content that would make your your superiors feel uh, like maybe he, this is I would the reach guy uh, for Jesse, Jesse Carey level of insanity almost immediately. Uh, yeah, well, well, he's still here. So, <laughs> all right, we are going to take a quick break, but when we come back, it's time for slices.
You're listening to Dream Boy by Beach Bunny. That was written about Clark. Flip <laughs> it's a little known. That's why. That's why I put it on there. <laughs> little known. Thought it, thought it made sense. <laughs> little. Yeah. Yeah. Better known now. <laughs> At the beginning of the podcast, you heard "Violence" by Grimes. That was written about Brian. <laughs> <laughs> that was written about Craig Rochelle at the Craig Rochelle roast because <laughs> things got personal and I, he's a pretty even keel guy, but maybe this yeah. roast was a bad idea. Until, until, you, until, you, touch, until you touch a raw nerve, <laughs> don't, you, come out. don't you say anything about the version app. Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> that was off limits. Yeah. All right. Time for our weekly look back at the stories of the intersection faith and culture that caught our attention this week. It's time for Slices. This week's slices are brought to you by our uh, by by our called podcast. Jesse, tell them about it. Yeah, so people definitely need to go check out our, our church leadership podcast called. We are right in the middle of season two. Uh, the episode that drops tomorrow is is a fascinating conversation with Eugene Cho. Big fan of Eugene Cho, uh, what he's done in the church world, but also the humanitarian world. And he's talking about innovation in ministry. Uh, we've had conversations so far uh, this year with with uh, John Eldridge. We've had Julia V on the show. Uh, we, we soon have uh, Dante Bo coming from Bethel Worship will be next week. Each week, the idea is that we can present conversations with leading pastors, innovators, activists, and thinkers that will help equip church leaders to impact and reach more people. And not only that, it's not just a, an impact-focused uh, show. We also uh, want to have conversations uh, that really are just helpful for people in ministry. So we have conversations about avoiding burnout, about protecting your marriage if you're in leadership and ministry. We are really, really proud of the show. We have been able to talk to some incredible uh, thinkers and leaders. We definitely think that if you are in ministry or you know someone in ministry, you'll really benefit from checking out our church leadership podcast called Called. You can get it wherever you get your podcast. It is called Called, Tyler. Called. Got it. <laughs> repetition. <laughs> repetition is the key to advertising. It's the only way. It's the only way. Called. To to Download. It called. It is yeah. worth checking out. Yeah. It is worth checking out. Uh, all right. Let's get into slices. Jesse, what do you got this week? All right. I have. Uh, I was going to do two for. I think we're going to do one because Tyler, I think you have two, and Brian, I know uh, we have some some important stuff to talk to you about. Uh, but I want to talk about a a an article I read this week, and it was a very in depth study uh, by a, a a journalist at the Atlantic by the name of Michael Mandyberg. And so this is how one of the opening sentences, and this is how you know it's going to be a good piece of journalism because this was an absurd absurdly difficult undertaking for, uh, you know, a piece that's ultimately a few thousand words in the Atlantic. I, and I'm all about that. I'm all about people doing things that mm -hmm. are absurdly hard just because they're interesting. Here's a quote from I parsed through all of the 800 and 884 million edits to the English Wikipedia to collect and geolocate the 43 million IP addresses that have edited English Wikipedia. I also counted 8.6 million user uh, username editors who have made it at who have made at least one edit to an article. So th this guy has gone through the IP address locations of almost a billion Wikipedia edits. 
First off, is this was he assigned this, you know, was he given this assignment like eight years ago? This is his one big project. <laughs> He's like, I just finished it. The deadline. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I blew through that two month deadline and it took eight years, but I'm finally public, you know, a, a billion pages of Wikipedia that he went through to study. And so he wanted to find out where are the people where do they actually live in the united states that most frequently make sure. um edits to wikipedia pages uh the, because part of part of the reason for you know doing this undertaking not just to see if any interesting patterns emerge when it comes to physical location and what the implication of those trends are uh but also we live in a time where Wikipedia carries a lot of weight. There's actually studies that when it comes to political season, um, you know, a lot of people get their, a lot of voters get their information, not just about candidates, but about policy issues. And one of their first stops is Wikipedia. So if, if, Wiki, sure. if Wikipedia entries are tilted a certain way, you might be able to tilt voters. So there's actually a really fascinating story. Uh, I, I listened to a, a podcast earlier this week. I think it was an episode of, I want to say it was Reply the Gimlet Show, which is a brilliant show, uh, but how there is a, a Wikipedia editor that reporters have a real hunch is Pete Budahej or someone that is a <laughs> giant Pete Budahej fan who has been editing his Wikipedia page for years before Pete Budahej was really a notable person. Uh, so all that to say, candidates themselves seem to really care about the contents of Wikipedia. Sure. So there's real value sure. in trying to figure out who are the people responsible for the content on Wikipedia, because obviously, if you know anything about Wikipedia, it is a user-driven database of information. It's an open-source encyclopedia. Anyone can make contributions to it. Anyone can make edits. But the thing is, every one of those edits are tracked forever, uh, including, you know, a IP address of where the edits are made. So uh, uh, this reporter, Michael Mandyberg, uh, did this research and he actually put on a, it's visually, you can go to the Linux and see this. There is a map of where the uh, uh, the regions are, where most of the edits come from, and where regions are that don't edit Wikipedia at all. So, Based on that premise, Brian, I want to ask you, where do you think, you know, kind of regionally, the most most of the people who are making edits to Wikipedia reside in this Loverland, country? Virginia, 100 <laughs> percent. That's right. In all in the Virginia Beach uh, uh, area. And I no, for real talk. I've only edited a Wikipedia page <laughs> once, and that was uh, to put in Never. false data to win a bet with someone. And uh, it, it worked. It worked. But that's my only Wikipedia edit. Uh, Tyler, where do, you, where do you think it was a sport? It was based on sports trivia. And I edited, screenshotted the edit and texted it. Um, Tyler, where do you think most of these Wikipedia edits are coming from? And where do you think they are not coming from? Uh, this is sincere. I think that most of the edits are, are coming from D.C., would be my guess. Well, uh, uh, there are a lot of them are coming from D.C., but broadly, it's mostly up and down the coast where uh, regions oh. of the middle of the country. So we're both right. Yeah. Regions of the middle of the country uh, are, are very unlikely to edit Wikipedia pages. Huh. Now, here's an interesting conclusion. This is what I mean. This is what I mean by there could be some greater implications. It turns out there are real patterns in the data. Um, and I'm going to read a little excerpt from this article. It says, okay. this pattern appears to closely and inversely resemble religious adherence. 
Counties with high religious adherence also have low-level Wikipedia editing activity, and counties with low religious activities have high levels of editing. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is a conclusion that this writer draws. I don't know if I necessarily agree with this, but this is one of the conclusions they draw. Of course, the modern encyclopedia is largely uh, sec- is a largely secular product. The, the first large scale one, uh, the first large scale mm-hmm. encyclopedia did emerge from the Enlightenment after all and took a then radical approach of organizing its contents according to reason, not theology. So that's one way to kind of read into it. I feel like personally, I feel like that is a little dismissive towards uh, religious audiences. I mean, the data there is the data, but I don't necessarily think that just because, uh, you know, people who are more devoutly religious don't edit Wikipedia as frequently as 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 areas of the country that are less religious. I don't necessarily think that those audiences have an aversion to facts. I think there could be a lot of other things at play, but I don't know if that's necessarily my conclusion, but I do think it's interesting. Tyler, Tyler, what what do you think? Why do you think these, you know, areas of that are hotbeds of religion in the country aren't editing Wikipedia at nearly the same rate? I mean, it's, 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 you know, a huge drop off as, as more agnostic and, and, you know, non-religious areas. I think we got the order all mixed up here. I think it's the opposite. I think it's pretty clear from the data that editing Wikipedia makes you believe in God less. You go on, <laughs> you're exposed to all sorts of, 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 of dangerous anti-theist propaganda, and it makes you... That seems very clear to me that that's what's going on. No, I, I think it's interesting. I think that there... It, that kind of lines up with a lot of research. We talk about this a lot, this kind of research a lot. Our friends over at Barna and Pew do studies on this a lot that do find a correlation between, um, like, uh, a, a continuing your education, uh, ongoing education with, uh, with more skepticism. And I don't think we people yet know why that is. I don't know if there is a, what, what the exact, uh, correlation is there and it's probably extremely complicated. It's not as simple as the smarter you are, the less religious you are. We know that's not the case, but the, but there is something to be something about the, the thirst for ongoing education that can be correlated with a little less of a religious adherence. So I, that's, that is interesting. I can say that, uh, I'm a religious person and I have edited. Uh, Wikipedia's. Uh, I think I did one minor edit. I did. I did what make was one the minor page? edit. One what was time. the page? I, I know. I, I'm assuming it was something to do with comic books, and you saw it, a fact. It actually like, was not. I think it was. I think it was in my. It was a professional that like I was researching. Uh, I think I was doing research on an article I wrote for Relevant. And I don't remember what it was, but I looked at something. I was like, I don't think that's true, and I and I checked it out and and corrected the source on that one. And I wish I could remember what it was now, but I don't. I, I think that. There's also a level of, um, I do think, and this is going to sound like a knock on religion, but I, but I'm, I'm saying it as a religious person. So, uh, how not much of a knock could it be? I think that when you're raised religious, there is sort of that ingrains in you this idea of trust and authority. Uh, like if it's, well, if it's said, if it's written down, if somebody else said it, then I get, then I, then I buy that. Obviously, it depends on the source a little bit because Christians have a very high distrust of certain sources of uh, of knowledge. And uh, but but there, I think that does kind of breed in you this idea that uh, well, who am I to go in and edit 
uh, I, I don't know. Like, I, and I think that can be actually a really good thing in a lot of ways. I think it can be a, a positive uh, for in some areas and, and a less positive thing in others. So I could see that possibly being part of it. But I'm really just I'm really just talking. Uh, nobody quote me on this one. Do not put this on my Wikipedia page. I think for people who know you well would know that you save the majority of your en- energy for chaos and disruption on the Internet for uh, Yelp reviews of restaurants. He doesn't like to edit Wikipedia. It's just yeah. destroying yeah. the local yeah. Arby's in whatever city he's visiting. <laughs> Never even been there. Don't care. What's going on with this Arby's? Don't it's care. like someone stepped on my sandwich. It looks nothing like the picture. It literally looks like someone stepped on my roast if beef before they gave it to me. Now, if you've got a local franchise, I have owned you on Yelp somewhere. It doesn't matter what. I don't need to go. I know no, I need to know. But when you I'm say snap local judgment from the side. When you say like local franchise, Tyler's not talking about like mom and pop restaurants. He's talking about people who open franchises of like KFCs and stuff like just chain, but clearly a franchise. Yeah. Doing my part to help the local economy by destroying the by destroying big, big fast food. And and, one Yelp review at a time. I'm going to go roast mode here because I know (laughs) Tyler's true first Wikipedia edit. He was looking through like, you know, the Captain America bio. And he's like, wait, this says this says that Captain Captain America's <laughs> Red Shield first debuted in, is- in issue 38 in 1947. It was issue 43 in 1948. This cannot stand. And then he's just furiously why? Why sweating would I profusely. Be on a page? Yeah. Why would I be on a comic book Wikipedia page? Do, do you think do you think that Steve Rogers has to go double check the Constitution before he quotes from it? I don't need to go check other people's source, other what other people say about the comic book industry, Jesse. I've got it all. I've got it all right here. <laughs> I've got right my own Wikipedia noggin. about Captain America. And it's right between the ears, right <laughs> in the middle of my chest, where my heart is. <laughs> all right, so Jesse, you're right. I do. Have, I did bring two uh, two slices. Uh, we one's uh, a little more. We'll, we'll start with kind of a, a the, the slightly more slightly more serious okay. one. I do. I would let you get y'all's thoughts on this one. Um, and this was a slice that I was uh, I was just talking to Clark about uh, a couple of days ago. I'm gonna get y'all's thoughts on it too. So, I, I Jesse, I know where you are. You stand on this, Brian. Are, are you a pet owner? Um, I'm sorry. Do you not know about the legend of Doctor Claw, the cat that I brought back from occupied Palestinian territory? I'm sorry. Did we not cover this? Have we no, not covered this every time somehow, I'm on the podcast? Somehow that didn't get. That wasn't on your Wikipedia page. <laughs> yeah, because Jesse edited it out. Yeah, I'm going to be editing it right now. <laughs> so you have Doctor Claw. No, no, I edited it out because I felt like Doctor Claw deserved his own Wikipedia page, which, Brian. Which he does. That's why. Which he does. That's and, why. And I will tell him you said that. Okay, so this is so this one. This is more of a this this study that I'm gonna re, that I'm gonna reference is about dogs in particular. The the implications for cat are certainly there, but uh, but it, it's mostly about dog. And I, I I do have a dog. Um, so for a long time, uh, scientists who who study the animal kingdom have been very skeptical of attributing the emotion of love to animals, sure. no matter how much people say. My oh my dog loves me my cat loves me scientists say nope they rely on you for food and shelter yeah they don't actually love you you are misinterpreting their survival instincts for actual human for, for something like love yeah. right you know so that so that has been the that has been the the rote position of the scientific community for a long time but new research 
is calling this assumption into question. So this is coming from uh, Arizona State University. Uh, they have a department called the Canine Science Collaboratory, which is run by a guy named Clive Wynn. And he actually started out as a skeptic on this. He was one of the ones who was always telling you, nope, animals can't, animals can't show love. And he started doing more research on it, and he has been swayed by his research over to the other side. And he says that at least as far as dogs are concerned... He believes that they feel a genuine warmth and affection for their owners that we might just have to call love. So uh, there's a few reasons for this. Uh, he says that part of his research has been proving that dogs are actually dumber than people thought. So they may not be a, a lot of things that we attributed to survival instincts. He doesn't think they're actually smart enough to have to be. So, they, so that may not be the uh, the silver bullet to the answer that people thought it was. He says that uh, he suggested instead dogs are set apart from a lot of different animals by what he calls hypersociability. And <laughs> this is a scientific work term. I guess, extreme gregariousness. For example, he has observed a spike in dogs' oxytocin levels when they stare into a human's eyes. Oxytocin, of course, is the chemical compound responsible for creating emotional bonds. The effect observed in dogs is similar to what happens in the brains of mothers and their babies when they stare into each other's eyes. Um, And then in 2009, a geneticist from UCLA named Bridget Von Holt found that dogs have a mutation of a gene responsible for what's called Williams syndrome in humans. Williams syndrome, I wasn't familiar with it, but it's characterized by some intellectual limitations and exceptional gregariousness. As Wynn puts it, he says, quote, the essential things about dogs, as for people with Williams syndrome, it is a is a desire to form close connections, to have warm personal relationships, to love and be loved. So, the basic implications of this is that for at least dogs and potentially for other animals as yet unstudied in the animal kingdom, there may be love may not be as exclusive of a, as a human emotion as previously thought. This would obviously have a lot of profound implications for how we think about uh, the treatment of animals and also profound implications for how we and, and a lot of people uh, who commented on this slice when I posted it on the relevant Facebook page had very Thoughtful, uh, kind, uh, well thought out, uh, high, highly, uh, highly, highly thought through uh, comments about what this might mean about uh, how Christians define love and whether or not animals are capable of of agape or, or whatever, what have you. I didn't. Think <laughs> I, fillet, I fillet my dog. He is my best friend. It is a friend. Other people it is a friend. Love, obviously, it's man's best friend. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I just think I don't know how much we can trust something positive about dogs coming out of the Canine Institute. It's like the Tobacco Institute of America <laughs> releasing a report about there's yeah. no correlation between yeah, cigarettes I and cancer. I, I get that. I thought the same thing. Yeah. I thought the same thing. The one thing that got me was that this guy did start out as a as a skeptic. The the instant when the institution sure. began, he was firmly on the on the dogs can't show love side yeah, of things. Wow. But it has gone to question. The uh, I would say they they do kind of show their hand there with the name of the institute. <laughs> well, yeah, the issue the 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 Institute for Canine Affection has found that dogs love people. Yeah, I just love how I just love that you know the the guy who is the skeptic who is the converted you know believes that dogs show some sort of love. Obviously, this person has a, a background in research and science, right? Probably you know, uh, and he studied assume. he studied animals yeah. and things like that. 
he probably has degrees that took a very, very long time to earn. That took a serious uh, financial, intellectual, and emotional investment on his part to get to where he has in life to be able to conduct this type of study. What's funny to me is that he's conducting this study, that it's all culminated. <laughs> like if you're at a cocktail party, and you're like, oh, right over there is one of the world's most famous animal neurologists. Ooh, I want to talk to him. <laughs> like, hey, how you doing? Canine. He's like, what, what are you working on right now? I'm working on a project about dog love. And I would just be like, all right, well, listen, I'm going to go over here. It was great yeah. meeting you. Um, <laughs> some video. But uh, good luck with that. Like, like what? you know what I mean? Like his whole career has led up to a study about whether dogs can quote unquote love. I'm not throwing shade at the guy. Everyone's got to put food on the table, but it's just a funny turn of events. Like if you were to ask that guy when he was, you know, entering into, uh, you know, a, a doctoral science program and they'd be like, what's the big thing that people are going to be talking about one day when my research, he's like, and if you were like, oh, it's dog love, you're going to be the dog love guy, you know, like it just, it's just a funny turn. We never can predict where our lives will take us. So good for, good for uh, them. That you know? is true. <laughs> I, I can speak to that. Yeah. Who would have thought though my career started out? I'd be talking about that research on a, on a podcast. The wheel of fate spins yeah. for us yeah, all, yeah, Jesse. We're all I would like to go on the record. I would like to go on the record and say that unlike Jesse Carey, I love dogs. <laughs> That's true. Jesse, you are, you are, you've talked about this a few times. Not a pet fan. No, I, and we don't have to do this right now because this isn't going to endear me to anyone, but I don't really care. My hot take <laughs> is that, you know what? I'm not even going to do it. I'm not even going to do it. <laughs> no, because listen. I had a long conversation about this exact topic, okay, I, about my thoughts about domesticated animals and beasts of labor. And I had it with someone and it did not go well. And I'm not going to have this yeah. conversation publicly. I, I've decided this this take is too hot. It's not every hot. take, not every take has to be. Not, the world's not ready for every take. First of all, I love dogs, but here's my thought on dogs. Cats, what do they do? Mm-hmm. They poop on a tiny little beach, and then you scoop it out. Not a big deal. Dogs, True. I don't, I don't want to have to Pretty walk easy. someone's large dog and take out a little plastic bag. I don't want to feel the heat through the plastic yeah. bag after I clean up after the yeah. dog. That is disgusting. <laughs> Jesse has Jesse has also espoused some of his thoughts about that I'm, too. I'm, it's, it, I'm it's, very anti. It's a downside. Yeah, it's a downside. Um, the, the the other thing too is I'm not I'm not a cat guy. It's not just dogs. It's 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 really any any pet. I don't I don't want any part of. I said the only way I will get a cat because I had this conversation recently is if it's a barn cat that's trained to just hunt all day. Just do what cats are meant to do. Go hunt vermin. I'll take a barn cat and he will be a savage <laughs> and he will be a hunter and he will eat. He will eat what he hunts. And it, and that's that's my thoughts. <laughs> I, on I cats. think it's because uh, you have. What are you going to do? What are you going to do, Jesse, when uh, when the day comes and because the, the day will come when Noah and Haley come to you, your your two, your two very sweet children uh, come the to you. Already and come. Say, the day's we already want, come. We, we want to. No, it's not going to happen. No, I've already had the talk. There's no animals in this house. house. This is house. This, this house, <laughs> believe it or not, was built for human beings, I, I, not animals I think from Jeff, outside. Now listen, what Jesse's going to do? He's just going to lie and he's going to say, "Daddy loves you," but he's allergic to all pets. Yeah, exactly. Unless we're talking, <laughs> oh, that's an easy one. Unless we're talking about a primate, I would totally. <laughs> I, I, oh, you'd I, have a you'd have a chimpanzee. I would have a chimpanzee because they are the ultimate conversation starter. Everyone's going to want to come over to meet the chimpanzee. If you have a chimpanzee, you're, you're the most popular person in the neighborhood because mm. people, kids are riding by the house. Oh, that's the house with the chimpanzee. That's a cool chimpanzee guy. I put him in funny like Hawaiian shirts. <laughs> I put him in like an old timey. 
You know, every time we go out, I put him in. We've all seen these movies. They end up owning you. I I would put him in an old-timey baseball outfit, a a pirate costume. Not even (laughs) a Halloween, either. He would not wear normal. I'm not going to march him around in a diaper. That's no way to live. That's that's not dignified. (laughs) I would... He would obviously... <laughs> From my understandings of these kind of situations, they have to wear diapers. But I would, I would outfit them in different crazy comical costumes wherever we go, and people would love it. That's where that's where my okay. my pet right, thoughts begin and end. Unfortunately, that's fair. That's fair. Okay, I do have the, 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 I do have one more one more short slice. I don't think this will take too long, but I'm it's gonna it's a visual slice. I apologize for this. I'm gonna send. Brian and Jesse, I'm going to send you an image on your phone. So I'm going to text you an image. And, uh, and well, first off, let me give you the sort of the the opening the, the opening salvo here. All right. So there was a church. Uh, there was a church down in Mexico that uh, that, that had uh, some open space. Uh, the the priest there was looking to decorate a little bit, and he decided he wanted a statue of baby jesus common church this is so far straightforward yeah. now the space that he had was was it was considerable size so apparently he had 23 open feet of space and he said well i'll get a 22 foot statue of baby <laughs> jesus to put there 22 feet 22 feet somehow in his mind this didn't strike him as odd he's very clear on this in all the interviews this pre it was like oh okay i got 23 feet i need a statue of baby jesus Needed to be just a little bit smaller, 22 feet. So he commissioned a, sta- a fiberglass statue of baby Jesus, 22 feet tall. It is accidentally the biggest statue of baby Jesus in the world. No surprise there. It weighs a ton. It weighs <laughs> 2,000 pounds. of 20 feet. <laughs> by, by significant margin. Why would someone make a, a, a statue of baby Jesus bigger than two feet? Much less than, 22 Than an feet. actual baby. Yeah. yeah. This, this is... So it is, it is a... And, and it really is striking to see like the the side by side of the statue of baby Jesus and a person because twenty two feet is an enormous statue. That's a lot of baby Jesus. But what's even more striking about it? What's even more striking about baby Jesus is that it is the, the striking resemblance this baby Jesus bears to a very famous person, a star of stage and uh, and studio. I'm going to send you this picture now, and I want to see if you all can see the resemblance here. Oh, right. as you can see, you have a, you have a statue of baby Jesus set right next to a picture of 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 the the famous former lead singer of Genesis and solo star <laughs> Phil Collins and the resemblance is uncanny it, it okay it is a for people that can't see it imagine a 22 foot uh, image of <laughs> what would appear to be a slightly disproportionate baby like like a lot of weird baby Jesus depictions in art for some reason yeah. it's not like a baby's body it's never just a baby it's like a shrunken yeah. it's like a shrunken human adult and also, yeah, like, I love, I mean, I've never seen I've never seen a 22 foot baby Jesus with a receding hairline either <laughs> like a mullet with a little 
little curly cue. It, it, it literally and the baby Jesus. You can see baby Jesus's ribs looks a little bit like a like like a little malnourished, but it mostly just looks like Phil Collins in a diaper. Yeah, but like a it, like a shrunken. It, Phil it Collins looks in a like diaper. I don't know if you like when I if you've been to like uh, a, a like a, an NBA team for like a struggling franchise really late in the season <laughs> or like a minor league baseball game like late in the season when they're trying to attract people and they do like a bobblehead night, but they've already done all the good bobbleheads, so they have to do like an obscure player on the team, and they definitely uh-huh. just use like generic dude bobblehead head. You know what I mean? Like, sure, it's wearing the it's wearing the guy's jersey, you know, like, but they clearly just was like, all right, we have the parted on the side hair, you know, random dude head that we're just going to plop on here. It looks like they were crafting this baby Jesus gigantic 22-foot sculpture, like, ran out of time, and they're like, we listen, we got to order a gigantic head somewhere. And they're like, for some reason, the only one I can find online that we can get overnight to Mexico is one of Phil Collins. We don't know where this originated, but just plop it on there. It'll do for now. I don't know. This, To be honest, this looks like a very doughy 44-year-old minor league baseball pitcher somewhere somewhere in the outer edges of Oaxaca. <laughs> you know, he's just about to retire, but you know what? After a bus accident, they had to call him up to the majors. Hey, Brian, before we go from slices real quick, it would be uh, we would it'd be a real missed opportunity if, you know, you are in addition to to comedy and 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 slice commentary. You uh, you happen to be an expert in a lot of situations that are happening around the globe that deserve more attention. Before we go to the next segment real quick, Brian, tell us about a, a global situation that is affecting a lot of people that you think more people should know about in order to affect some change in a, in a region of the world. Is there a, a crisis or a situation that you can think that you'd want to inform people about? Yeah, I would say before I say anything else, a great place to get more facts on all of these issues we work on is to go to worldvision.org. Um, but this being a Bible centered podcast, technically, uh, I want to talk about <laughs> locusts. Okay. Locusts. Locusts. Okay. Locusts in Africa right now are affecting about 19 million people. Wow. The amount of food that they eat is ridiculous. So, I mean, if you want to go online, we have some stories about locusts. I think that's it's just phenomenal, the amount of coverage that's happening. But it's not being covered very well. I think the second thing that's really not being covered is um, Syria. I mean, it's nine years of war. Over 5.6 million people have been displaced. So, um, you know. Jesus Christ was a refugee. And I think that as Christians, we can do a lot more to help people who are displaced. And it's one of those things in scripture, there are a lot of gray areas and you can wrestle about different interpretations, but there's 100% clarity clarity on how we're supposed to love and serve refugees. So I would encourage people, I know that it's been happening for so long, it's nine years, but you know, go online and learn about how you can love and serve refugees where they are right now. It's freezing cold and children are living in tents in Syria right now. Well, Brian, you guys do a lot of incredible work in some of the most dangerous places on earth, including 
you know, refugee camps and including outreach to to people affected by war who have been displaced by natural disasters. So definitely we want to encourage people to check out worldvision.org to find out more about what people can do for the people of Syria. Real quick, Brian, before we transition to tell us, you know, the situation with with locusts, it is very serious and it is something that's been, you know, very underreported that these these swarms of of these, you know, insects will go and just demolish crops and leave nothing in their wake and really uh, it can affect food supplies and already unstable places if people go to worldvision.org how can they find out more about actually helping the community affected by that uh, issue right now so one one of the things that world vision does is we do relief work so we do relief development and advocacy and so relief is one of those components where when there's something going on right now we help people with the things that they need immediately whether there's a hurricane or an earthquake mm-hmm. or locust we want to make sure that people have that they're safe that they um, have clean water and that they have food and that we help them work with their communities to develop a plan to get back on their feet. The one fact that I found really uh, amazing about locusts is that within 24 hour period of time, a swarm can eat between 100 and 160 tons wow. of crops. Wow, man. Wow. That is crazy. Wow. Well, I mean, not to be the downer on the podcast. No. I mean, I know that's why. No, you <laughs> no, we do need to. We we do but, we we try to maintain and, that balance. Yeah, and, and 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 I think you know when people are informed about the magnitude of this issue, hopefully it spurs a call to action. And so, um, I mean, I, I'll tell you, I've said this before. Like one of my one of my favorite verses, um, one of my life verses is. Um, you know, in Luke, where it says, you know, to whom much is given, much is required. Yeah. So when I hear about all the things going on around the world, you know, the work that I do locally in D.C. with senior citizens or the work that I do with World Vision around the world, I don't feel overwhelmed. Scripture says that, um, you know, that you, you need to put your faith into action. The faith without works is dead. And so living in the most blessed country in the history of the world, I don't feel overwhelmed by these challenges. I know that God is doing work and he invites me to be a part of what he is already doing. And I, and I love that. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be an expert on hunger or hydrology. All you have to do is find an organization, whichever one you like, World Vision, Charity Water. There's a whole bunch of great organizations. Learn about what's going on and find one. One simple thing you can do, whether it's sponsoring a child or donating to a refugee responder kit, just find something that you feel led to get a part of. Don't feel like you have to fix everything. Just find one thing. If you if you haven't, I'm sure most people listening to this are aware of the great work you all do at World Vision. I was I'm really grateful. My folks raised. We always had a World Vision sponsored kid growing up in the house that I grew up in, and and I still do now. My man Conti, shout out to Conti. Of I, I picked it. Whoa, whoa, I, I picked Conti because he's got my same birthday. It is we're birthday buddies. So it is. Uh, that's good. He's 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 a he's an artist. He's not great. His, his drawings sometimes leave me a little bit mystified. But but he's wor- He's come Harsh. a long ways in a short amount of time. I, Harsh. I, Conti, I'm sorry. It's tough love. Well, tough to be love, fair, man. he's to be fair, he's in you know his his hometown there, and he's saying the same thing about your artwork that you've sent him. <laughs> yeah, he's that's like, true. honestly, that's true. my World Vision sponsor has sent me some very very <laughs> odd pictures. I can't tell <laughs> my <laughs> Captain America, vague, Captain America fan art. These, these a, look a, vaguely superheroish, but it's like a superhero <laughs> fever dream, and I'm very disturbed by it. I'm, I'm he's actually contacted World Vision about you, Tyler. <laughs> yeah, Can I, I didn't want to bring else? this up on the podcast. But 
but yeah, he was like, you guys got my sponsor works exclusively in crayon. He's, he's like in his 30s. What's going on with this guy? And, and his pictures are the stuff of nightmares. And so world. So this, Conte, instead of money, I was thinking I'd send you some art. So, so Ty, Ty, the money of the soul. Tyler, listen, it's it's this is a good nature thing. We just wanted to bring it up. But consider this a formal warning, because that's what it is. That's, that's what it is. But it has given me a Strike lot of joy. Two. Me and my wife, a lot of joy to to have some kids. And if you if you are doing it right now, and if you have some extra resources, it's not very expensive. And I've I've really enjoyed doing that for my whole life, and, and will continue to. So, worldvision.com, easy to find. And I would jump in if I could. One one last thing. Um, World Vision has this new program where they're mixing it up, where it's called Chosen. You can go online and submit your photo, and actually the. You don't pick the child. The child picks you. Oh, that's very cool. Which oh, cool. is a fascinating oh, I like that. innovation, I think. Yeah, it's the oh, first like time that. we've done that. Yeah, that's cool. Very so cool. there's a whole bunch of like heartwarming videos you can see. About, and it's really about empowering children because the development is not about charity. Sure. It's not about handouts. It's about partnering with people and helping them be who God wants them to be. And so it's it's just amazing. Go on worldvision.org. There's a whole bunch of cool videos. That's awesome. It'd be kind of depressing if you never got picked, though. Be like on Tinder when nobody's <laughs> like, man, <laughs> these kids are really that maybe, bad. Maybe no, do, no children, well, well, Tyler, even the heart maybe, of a child. Maybe make your pro. Maybe next time, don't make your profile pictures one of your disturbing crayon superhero drawings. <laughs> it's a, from the, it's a great image right. of me straight from as Captain straight America. from the pit of the nightmare zone. <laughs> All right, thanks for that, Brian. We are going to take a quick break when we come back. Karen Swallow Pryor joins us. You're listening to Susudio by Phil Collins. Who? <laughs> by Phil, by the legend, our Lord and Savior. No, no, he's just Phil Collins. He's just a man. He's just don't, a guy who plays drums and sings. Don't be deceived by the he, 22 foot fall. 20 foot. <laughs> can we just acknowledge too? It's weird when the drummer is the singer. Like it's very cool. It's, I'll never get used to it. When, I'm impressed. Uh, I when, couldn't do it. Listen, when will a church? have a drummer actually lead worship when will the oh, revolution man. begin and someone do the phil collins that would, thing where that would change the game because who do we, we get phil uh obviously uh, under oath our friends under oath yeah uh, yeah they uh back in their heyday the drummer was aaron gillespie some right? others, but yeah. i can't think of tim yeah there's yeah, not oh, enough yeah, that's right that's right it's not enough and not, i no. challenge I, any church it's, on it's Sunday not morning. for everybody if i see listen i want someone to walk into a church and they're like who is singing right now because no one on the stage has microphones and they look behind that mm-hmm. plexiglass cage the, that the cage. listen tyler yeah. I, I was at church on sunday and the drummer was behind uh-huh. the, the plexiglass cage as they typically of course, do as in is a lot the of want, yeah. evangelical sure. you know churches I have, and I was thinking while I was sitting there, I have been to hundreds, maybe, and this is not an exaggeration, you and I both do this for a living, maybe thousands of concerts in my lifetime, right? right. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, you and I have been to dozens together, you know? Just even together, yeah, yeah. And so, in most of the concerts, I, I, a lot of the concerts that I've been are in a room either the size of or smaller than the church auditorium mm, that I was in. For sure. And never once have I gone to a concert. Never once. Doesn't happen. In any uh, any concert I've ever been to is the drummer behind a plexiglass <laughs> cage. It is, I know. It, is a, it is a church phenomenon. It makes no sense. But if you had the drummer singing behind 
behind there. It would it would be just a cool twist on everything. That's all. And that's the I'd end be of my interested in it. Not a Jimbe. Not a. I'm not talking about the 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 youth group. The the, the little instrument you came back with from your mission trip. Yeah, it's, a, it's an impressive instrument. I, 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 I this is not sure. this is not to besmirch. This isn't about the, a percussionist. This is not a no. percussionist. This we is need, a drummer. I'm saying drumsticks, drum kit from behind plexiglass. If you want to do all three, if your church has one, I hope you'll reach out to us. I would love to see video yeah. video evidence. Again, this isn't this. the person with like tambourines, a rain stick and the no. egg shaker. This I is could, the I drummer. I could sing and do that. It would be terrible, uh-huh. but I could do it. I want someone behind the plexiglass actually singing. Okay. Into, into, into right. rant for me. Yeah. All right. Like Phil Collins did. <laughs> um, so the conversation today was brought to you by an organization that I really believe in better help. Um, there, oh, what, what they do is, is such an important thing. It's something that I really want to be part of my goal as a, as a person here on this earth is to make uh, finding counseling to remove some of the stigma from seeking out counseling and therapy. I've been glad to see the advances made on that front over the past decade or so. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Now you can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. You can now get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule a secure video or phone session, plus chat and text with your therapist. Licensed professional counselors are available who specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep issues, grief, family issues, lots more. Uh, BetterHelp has 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 states. And of course, if you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time and everything that you share is confidential. Best of all, this is an affordable option. Obviously, that's a big issue. Things like this, this one does help. The relevant podcast listeners, you can get 10% off your first month. Use the discount um, code relevant. Yeah. So, uh, so go ahead and get started today. Take that t- the first step. Just reaching out is is the is a really tough one, but it can be so rewarding and really provide you with the resources to deal with issues that you're aware of in your life, and maybe even find some ones that you weren't that uh, that dig up dig up some old and important stuff that'll lead to a more to a better peace of mind and better all, overall quality of life. Go to BetterHelp.com/slash/relevant. Simply fill out the questionnaire, help them assess your needs, and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash relevant. Karen Swallow Pryor is a professor of English whose writings and social commentary have appeared in Christianity Today, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, First Things, Vox, and with us at relevantmagazine.com. She's the author of the book On Reading Well. Finding the Good Life Through Great Literature and is currently editing volumes of classic literature including Sense of Sensibility and Heart of Darkness. I got to speak with Karen about her work and the power of engaging with the classics. I really enjoyed this conversation. I'm, um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but you can probably tell from my, my erudite conversation skills and huge vocabulary that <laughs> I'm a little bit of a bookworm. Uh, and well, I, I do. <laughs> well, Tyler, I know it's funny because, you know, we have a, a little peek behind the, the, the scenes here. You know, we, we are constantly lining up different interviews and, and, yeah, and figuring yeah. out well, different people to talk to, uh, that would be interesting interesting for our listeners. And I know you talked to Karen back in June, and then you've actually yeah. talked to her on the topic of classic literature before for the website. Um, but when this one kind of came across our desk, I was like, you know, this is like a perfect interview for Tyler for the podcast. Two smart people talking about smart things <laughs> well. and providing recommendations for Philistines like me, who <laughs> r- rarely crack a classic volume. Uh, Tyler, tell us about the combo, man. 
So this is really so this was an interesting conversation. She's editing, and I I I, I do I, I've never really understood a lot of what this means. The idea of editing classics. Yeah. Um, what are you doing with these? So that was kind of a big part of what I want to talk to her about. And basically, it's just selecting volumes of classic literature. In this case, works that are in the public domain, and uh, and and sometimes there are different translations. So you have to choose which parts of these translations to pick. You write an intro to help get people on board with the subject and why this book why now and then sometimes in some cases and in the case it should be noted of heart of darkness there are some sort of problematic elements to those books there's still a lot of valuable things that are taught in the book a good story there's also some things that just haven't uh aged very well and of course weren't good at the time so it's up to the editor to know how to navigate those if there needs to be different language used which uh, in that case at least in one very notable instance there was so uh, what i wanted to know being uh, made aware of all that She's going to be doing a few of these books, but I wanted to know why start with these two, Sense and Sensibility, Heart of Darkness, uh, two very different books. If you remember from your old high school or college lit courses, you're going, you've are you got a little bit of tonal whiplash yeah. between these two. So I, I wanted to know why she picked these and why is such a yin and yang of the emotional spectrum. Here's what she said. Well, you're obviously paying attention. So <laughs> great. Um, I chose two sort of polar opposite books. Um, intentionally uh, for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, sort of uh, philosophical. You know, my last book was about virtue and virtue is the moderation between uh, two extremes. And so I selected a book that is sort of a stereotypical book loved by women readers. um, And I picked a book that is a stereotypical um, male book that's difficult and dark to read um, because I, you know, I wanted because that is my approach to reading. I argue for reading widely. Um, and I think these just in two books, you can kind of get, capture part of that range. And I also wanted to signal um, to all out there that this is not a series of classics for women. I really want to encourage men to read these classics as well. So that made sense to me. You're trying to reach a broad audience. You want sense and sensibility. Obviously, stereotypically is considered a little more geared towards women, while Heart of Darkness uh, is, finds a little more of an audience with men. But that, the bigger question, I think the broader question of all this is, why do we read classics? Why should we still keep going back to these? I think a lot of us saw these things as something that we had to do when we were, you know, when we were assigned to in yeah. school and we didn't really enjoy it a lot then for a lot, not everybody, but a lot of people didn't really enjoy it a lot then. So why would I do it now that I don't have to read those books or really read anything at all? And uh, her answer was obviously given, uh, given her, her uh, passion and intellect about the subject was very astute. I'm glad you brought up you know, the assigned reading from high school and college because I think that does turn a lot of readers off, um, not only because they aren't ready for it or they're just doing it to complete an assignment, but so often that approach to reading just focuses on the content and the story and the test you have to take for it. Um, but reading classics for the joy of reading that that literature because it uses language so well is really a way of improving our own ability with language. Um, and, and we all use language every day, no matter what we're doing, whether we're tweeting or we're working or we're conversing with our family members and loved ones. Uh, language is central to everything that we do. And so who wouldn't want to be better at that? And in these, in, in these days today, I think 
I think um, this the difficulties that we have with the way that we use and understand language is at the core of so much uh, negative that's going on these days. So I think we need to read literature more than ever. Tyler, what what are your feelings? I know you you read a lot. You read a lot of books on uh, you know st- I, I you know we we do so another behind the scenes curtain. You know in years past at like relevant Christmas party gift exchanges, you've you've gotten me and given me some cool books. You gave me The Watchmen, which is a graphic novel. I know you're a big yeah. fan of that genre, but you, you also read a lot of as both of us do as part of this job uh, books from authors like Karen Swallow Pryor and other yeah. Christian thinkers who are concerned with social modern social issues and theology, but what, what are some of your go-tos or when it comes to classic literature or, or do you even kind of put them into rotation? Yeah, I think that's an intro that's, uh, cause I do, we both do read a lot of the, of the books that we get as part of the job here at relevant, but as, as, uh, sort of suits the line of work we're in the lane that we're in, those books tend to be nonfiction. They tend to be about modern social issues, uh, things about, about studies and, uh, and leadership and modern movements. And those are important. And I do care about those, which is why when I'm off the clock, I tend to prefer fiction. Um, and it's a genre that I really care about. That I think is really valuable. That's given me a lot of me and, and my wife too. My wife is working on her first novel yeah. and uh, is getting her master's in fiction writing right now. So she's really the more of the expert on this. She could articulate all this a lot better than I could. But, uh, but I, when it comes to classics, this is actually, uh, we did, this isn't going to be on this podcast, but one of my favorites is going to be next up in Karen's list of what's coming, what she's editing next. And it's, uh, Jane Eyre. By Charlotte Bronte, uh, which I think is a, a really, really yeah. excellent book that is uh, sort of widely heard about, but sort of poorly understood. I really do love that book, and I'm looking forward to reading her uh, her edit of that one. Uh, and then I also one that I tell people a lot that I feel like a lot of people think they know what it's about, but probably haven't actually read the source material is Dracula by mm. Bram Stoker, mm. which I think is a, a really, really good book that is not nearly as a you know there's a popular idea of what dracula is like and then there's the book itself and i think that there is uh it'd be interesting for people to compare what they have in their heads to what the the book actually is yeah she had mentioned you probably caught in that last clip the uh that the lack of reading good literature she felt like was part of the a lot of the uh some of the the problems that we're seeing in our culture and society today i was curious to know what she meant by that and uh and here's what she said well i mean if you just spend any time on twitter you can see that so much of the infighting and the the quick responses to one another are based on first of all not reading something just reading like the headline and not you know people people i i will never to be amazed at the people who are willing to respond publicly to something that they haven't read um, because they think that a title or a phrase captures it. And so we, we have this reductive view of language because we aren't immersed in literary language enough. So we have forgotten how deep and resonant and rich language is. And so we just take words as, as having, you know, flat uh, univocal meanings that everyone agrees upon. And that misunderstanding informs so much of our conversation with one another, not only on social media, but even in, in real life. I mean, how many times do we have conversations where some we respond to someone, well, you said this, but I meant this. I mean, this, this, is, this is the nature of language and we need to all, we all need to be better at it. 
So she mentioned Jesse, and we're familiar with this, the idea of people who respond to things without really reading them. Oh, uh, often online. People we do have that? seen some, we have seen, <laughs> hey, some of that. No. But, it, but it, it goes even deeper than that, too, because even if they have read, a lot of times you talk to people who read it, but didn't really understand it. And I think everybody's familiar with that feeling, uh, especially online, where you feel misunderstood or, or what you said didn't come across the right way. And, uh, and you're sort of stuck with this, uh, lost in translation tone or, or, or quality of speech. And, uh, what, what she's saying is we need to read better. If we read better, we'll write better. If we write better, we communicate better. And so part of, not all of, but part of our problem with modern communication is we just, uh, all we read all day are our tweets and Instagram posts and Facebook messages. Uh, and these aren't necessarily the, the best writing you can find out there. So if we do a better job of opening our idea of what we can read, exposing ourselves to different types of literature, different types of writing, it'll improve our own writing styles. And yeah. that's something you can really get uniquely from classic literature that you really can't get anywhere else as easily. Yeah, for sure. I mean, because the the style is is really timeless, you know, um, it, you know, it, it has stood the test of time. It's It's not trendy, you know. And it can be a challenge, right? Because you're, if you're used to just reading things at 260 characters all day long, then jumping all of a sudden to reading something like Sense and Sensibility or The Heart of Darkness feels like a big shift. And it is, but it's a, it's one worth doing. And the last thing I wanted to know is why, what, what, what is particularly interesting about this for people of faith? For, for Christians who come to these books? Is there something, is there a special spiritual uh, or even emotional uh, health that we can get from reading classic literature that we can't get anywhere else? Here's what she said. That's a great question. And it can be difficult to read works of literature that are by and about people that seem so different from us. And especially if the language is, is not the kind of language that we use today. Um, but there really is nothing new under the sun. And so when we read works by anyone from any time or any place that, that are great, and of course, you know, there's a lot of literature and it's not all great, but if it's good or great, it is so because it captures something about universal human experience. Um, and it just that helps us to transcend ourselves, our time, our place, our immediate moments. Um, it gives us a broader vision of humanity and, and problems and conflict. And we need that more than ever as well, because things seem pretty tough right now, but it's always, it's always been tough. And I think there's some comfort as well as some illumination that we gain when we look at the struggles that other people have had, whether real or fictional. So really, uh, I I think that I I agree with uh, with Karen Swallow Pryor on this that uh, a dearth of really good fiction writing of, of reading classic literature is uh, is a sign of of unwellness in our society. And I am really glad that she has decided to attack that problem in this way. It's a very proactive way to try to help people get exposed to more and better books. Looking forward to reading these, and I hope that you all do too. Yeah, very, very cool project. Thanks, Tyler, for having that great conversation. Thanks, Karen, for not only uh, talking to us, but for the work she's doing. It's really, really cool stuff. Absolutely. That was Karen's follow-up prior. Next up, your feedback.
You're listening to After Hours by The Weekend. All right, so last week we asked you, <laughs> this was fun, about what urban legends you remember from your childhood. The, the stories that you, from many of us in the pre-internet era, that you and your friends were aware of and, uh, and how those affected your life growing up. You reached out to us over Twitter and here was what you said. Uh, yeah, I, I want to highlight a couple here. Ryan said that uh, their college VP warned us. This is back in 1998. This is what Ryan said. That, that all the students were preparing to leave for Christmas break and the vp of the college warned all the students uh about not flashing high beams back at people <laughs> who were using yeah. it to uh, yeah. illegally <laughs> signal people to turn around because then they would follow and then obviously you'd be murdered and so like gang, even though like i don't know initiation thing yeah. or that's what, i remember hearing that too even yeah. though i don't know if there's ever one documented incident of that happening it, you know a, a, a college a college vice president back in the late 90s felt it important to issue a formal warning to the student body about flashing them high beams, you know. Uh, You also have this one from Christian who said, uh, I grew up in Norway and Hong Kong in the pre-IMDB era, also hearing the rumors that Marilyn Manson was Paul on the Wonder Years pretty crazy how that rumor yeah that was an extremely and i don't know was it did it travel by boat how like, did it get how did to it hong get, kong how did how did everybody know about paul and the how did they even know about the wonder years first of all i didn't know that was like a popular export of the united states uh, but b the Marilyn Manson thing was like was like I barely knew who Marilyn Manson yeah. was when I heard this rumor. Like I was only vaguely aware of like the some of like the Christian paranoia around Marilyn Manson. Like you listen to him one time yeah. and you'll next thing you know you're worshiping Satan. But I and then I knew that he was he was Paul in the Wonder Years. Well, it turns out that that was actually untrue. But someone brought it over to Hong Kong at some point and told uh, elementary school kids there too that Brian, yeah. did you have any weird stuff that you believe that? an elementary or like middle school kid that was just one of those common urban legends um i think mine are way too embarrassing to to admit on this podcast (laughs) wow (laughs) i once read this story that dogs actually love people turns out it was funded by the canine fashion institute big fraud big fraud thank you tyler we also we're running a little long so i wanted to get into these today but i feel like we'll save this for the friday show and maybe we'll do a special Uh segment at the end of the show because we we, brian uh you know you are involved in fundraising uh uh you know you you've done a lot of cool stuff we've done the global 6k we had an idea last episode that one way that we could raise some money for a good cause is that uh, our own Tyler Huckabee could potentially undergo uh, what would be there's only one way to describe it. it's a 90s youth pastor makeover. This would involve uh, some sort of goatee or soul patch. <laughs> possibly frosted tips, WWJD spiky, yes. apparel, the spiky hair, some, the LA, the LA yeah, looks, it, hair gel, maybe maybe <laughs> a sleeveless acquire the fire tea. Uh, you know, <laughs> this, 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 this is this is 90s youth pastor on the weekend. Uh, we're going for. I probably have to call a couple of my old youth pastors, like high fidelity style. Go back to the high, to the youth pastors that made me, and uh, and get some of their tips from that. Yeah, era. maybe uh, maybe a, a hype a hyper color T shirt or two. You know, yeah. 
yeah, exactly. Yeah, he, yeah, he, yeah, he's yes. always carrying around a box of pizza in case pizza party breaks out. You know, has he's got <laughs> I do I do that. He's got anyway, the keys yeah. to the church just to, you know spontaneous lock ins things <laughs> like that. Um, and we had a lot of people uh, um, issue some feedback about their enthusiasm about this project and their willingness to donate to a good cause. So instead of reading that, let's actually we'll save it for Friday's show. Tune in and we'll give we'll you an update it. about Tyler's nineties youth pastor makeover. Sounds good. How about that? Sounds good. Sounds. Good. I, I think I think it's a great Love idea. It. Um. All right. Well, hey. I'm going to wrap it up for us this week. Many thanks to Karen Swallow Pryor for joining us. Uh, looking forward to reading the the classics that she edits. I think it's a great opportunity, whether you've read these or you're looking for another chance to revisit some of the books that you read back in high school and college. Check those out again. You can follow her at KS Pryor. That's K-S-P- R-I-O-R-K-S prior. She's a great follow on Twitter. Also, thanks to BetterHelp. Go to betterhelp.com slash relevant. You can just fill out that questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. It's betterhelp.com slash relevant. Also, thanks to Cold our church leadership podcast. Make sure that you give that, whether you're really interested in church leadership uh, or you're involved in church leadership or you're just a fan of the church in general, some really great conversations happening over there worth giving them worth checking them out and the relevant daily. As long as you're on Apple podcast page, easy to follow that 10 minutes Monday through Friday to get you caught up on the latest at the intersection of faith and culture. And my last thank you of the day goes to Brian Duss. Brian, this is super fun, man. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. You know what? The way you can really thank me for coming on the show is to custom draw in crayon a superhero character of my choosing. I, I, I am name name your name your character. It'll be in the mail by the end and, of the day. And it will be the one. Wait, can, can, it, it'll be one of the most horrific things you ever see. You, <laughs> it'll be yeah, terrifying. Yeah. I mean, I is Boba Fett a superhero? He is to me. That's what I want. I it want counts. Boba Fett from sure. Star from and Star want, Wars, want, the the Mandalorian the precursor. Boba Fett? Yeah. Boba Fett. That's what I want. Say say no more on the house. Yeah. You you send that out on us. <laughs> you, that, that one's for free. You said if you, people can follow you on on socials as well, right? They, you've got some you've got some things they, to say. They can more importantly, I think they should follow World Vision. You can just follow World Vision on Twitter oh, and nice. Instagram or follow us on Facebook. Nice. Facebook. Yeah. I am BP Dust on Instagram and Twitter and all that, but more importantly, if you're going to follow one thing, go to World Vision. And also, Brian, be careful what you ask for. I asked Tyler to do a depiction <laughs> of Baby Yoda for me, and it looks like a a a demon hell beast from the most inner gates of the hottest part of the most when disturbing I, <laughs> darkness I've ever seen. And when I start drawing, I just let the instinct take over. Is, I let the reason. Yeah, your your picture of Baby Yoda looked like someone microwaved a Nerf football. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then put a bad, you know, bad book. What was what, what, what's the, the character? The bad book. The what? The the, the, Babadook. the, oh, the Babadook. The Babadook. The Babadook. It looks like yeah. someone microwaved a Nerf football and put a Babadook uh, I kind of like Babadook because yeah. it makes it sound like the library decided to try to do their own version of the Babadook <laughs> called the Babadook, and it was it's like a like get the kids to read with a fun monster. Like he visits your home in the night and he leaves books on your front doors. Hey. Maybe it looks like kind of like a new book at program that inadvertently terrifies children and traumatizes them from the very idea of reading a book for the rest of their lives. And for some reason, it looks like an evil baby Yoda. So, <laughs> all right, everybody, thanks for joining us. I hope you all have a great week. I'm Tyler Huckabee. I'm Jesse Carey. I'm Clark Flippo. I'm Brian Duss. We'll see you all Friday. Like that, like that, like that.
for listening to The Relevant Podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. Check out other shows from The Relevant Podcast Network in the podcast section at relevantmagazine.com. And while you're there, browse exclusive podcast merchandise at our online store. Make sure to subscribe to Relevant Magazine. Info is available at relevantmagazine.com forward slash subscribe. Hey, nice soul patch, Sugar Ray. Relevant Podcast Network.